Good morning today on Fuzzy Logic. We're going to be talking some technical terms here. There's a technical term coming right up front. Stand by to receive a technical term. Here it is transcranial magnetic stimulation. And what does that mean? Well, let's say it more slowly. Transcranial, trans as in across, cranial as in brain, and magnetic stimulation. And we have a special guest today on Fuzzy Logic, and it is Professor Peter Entercott from the School of Cognitive Neuroscience School of Psychology at Deakin University. And we also have a fantasy novelist, uh, Katie. We're just going to call her Katie. We'll explain later while we're just calling her Katie, but she's a prolific fantasy novelist and... We'll bring our own personal perspective on the subject today and about how transcranial magnetic stimulation relates to Asperger's. And also Fuzzy Logic regular, Dr Ian MacDonald. Now, Peter, uh, let's kick off with the term that I've just threw out at everybody, transcranial magnetic stimulation. What is it? Well, transcranial magnetic stimulation is a neuroscience technique that's been around in its form for about 30 years, and I guess it, it involves, at its, at its simplest, the use of very strong but brief magnetic pulses to stimulate brain cells. And so the way that we achieve that is is we hold a device which is, which is known as a coil, which is essentially some metal that's coated in plastic that's held against somebody's head, and out of this coil we, we generate a very brief but powerful magnetic pulse, and that pulse travels through to the brain, now, when it gets to the brain, it actually induces an electrical current, and uh, that electrical current can uh, can cause brain cells to fire. So, at its simplest, that's what transcranial magnetic stimulation is. It's it's the use of a of a metal coil uh, to generate a magnetic pulse to send into the brain, uh, which which is then uh, inducing electrical current to to stimulate brain cells. So, it's a fairly science fictiony kind of a concept, really, isn't it? That uh, you can affect the working of a person's brain by firing these magnetic pulses into them. What, what sort of application are you looking at? Well, we're looking at uh, the application of TMS to, to investigate how the brain works, but also to, to, to change brain activity. And, and I, I guess I probably should go into a bit of the history around TMS. So TMS, as I mentioned in its current form, has been around for about 30 years. Um, but, but the history of using magnetic and electrical stimulation um, to, to stimulate cells, not just in the brain but in the body, uh, goes back many hundreds of years. But in, in terms of TMS, um, in 1985 we, we saw the first, uh, the first scientific publication and, and, and what it was being used for back then was to stimulate the part of the brain that controls our, our motor functions, known as the motor cortex. And so what they showed is that if you could, uh, you could actually stimulate the brain via this magnetic pulse uh, over the regions that control, for example, hand muscles, and, and what you could do is induce some, some muscle activity, say, in the hand muscles following this pulse. But what happened, so it was, it was originally developed just to investigate how the brain worked, in, in particular around the control of, of motor function. But what happened in the 1990s, quite by accident, was that they noticed that, that sometimes when people had this, this TMS delivered, and especially if it was delivered with, with repeated pulses, uh, a number of people actually reported, um, you know, short-lasting uh, improvements in their mood. So they, they tended to get a bit happier after this, this magnetic stimulation. <laughs> So what uh, what essentially happened then was that it was it was eventually realised that if you give repeated pulses, you can actually change the activity in a person's brain and, and have lasting effects. So it was developed then as a as a treatment for uh, depression. Now not not any any sort of depression, but what we call treatment resistant depression. So this is depression that 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 people have very very serious illness that that doesn't actually respond to typical treatments like your, your medications or your psychotherapies. It's for people that, that essentially don't get better with, with what we usually have to offer. So the last 15 or 20 years has actually seen a lot of research in with, with TMS to, to improve depression and that's uh, that's culminated in, in 2008 with, uh, with the FDA or the Food and Drug Administration of the US actually approving TMS as a, as a general use for depression. So it's in, it's in clinical practice for, for depression treatments and essentially what it's doing there is, is, is using TMS to improve activity or increase activity in a part of the frontal lobe that, that we know is actually underactive in, in people with depression. So 
you know, depression's one one application and certainly the most common application, but but it actually follows that there's a number of conditions, a number of brain disorders and, and conditions that that we know that there's, there's parts of the brain that are either overactive or, or underactive. So we've been investigating, for example, the use of TMS in, in, in Asperger's, whether we can target particular parts of the brain involved in, in understanding other people's thoughts and feelings and, and whether we can have similar sorts of effects. And, and others are, are looking at whether we can use TMS in, in a range of other conditions such as schizophrenia, Tourette's syndrome, obsessive compulsive disorder. There's a number of potential applications, but it's really been depression that's been the, the main application for TMS. Okay. So now a, f- a fundamental principle behind what you're doing is understanding the regions of the brain and what they do. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. So how precise is the aiming of this? Because uh, a magnetic field is a fairly, well, a fairly spread out kind of thing. It's not like a laser beam or, or that you can target clearly. How do you, how precise is it? It's, it's quite precise, but it really depends on the type of coil that you use. So there's a number of different coils. The standard coil is a figure of eight coil, what we call a figure of eight coil. So that has two, two round coils um, joined and, and, and where we, we generate the magnetic, magnetic pulses in the centre. So that's, that's quite focal. That, that can stimulate a region on the, on the surface of the brain about one to two centimetres squared. So it's, it's quite, quite focal. Um, but, but we have different types of coils that, that do different things. So we have other coils, for example, that go a bit deeper into the brain. But the, the trade-off there is that as we go deeper, with that, that focality, that, uh, that, that specific stimulation um, reduces. So we, we get a broader, broader spread of the, of the induced electrical field. But, you know, the, the traditional, traditional method uh, is, is quite, quite focal. Now, the way, that we, the way that we do it in terms of, of stimulating the region of the brain is that we use a, a technique called neuronavigation. And this is where we'll take a, a brain scan using something like MRI uh, and we'll actually we'll, we'll determine which parts of the brain uh, correspond to, to parts of the scalp. So we can, we can for example, target a very specific um, part of the frontal lobe by registering a person's head to their brain scan and then, uh, and then being very confident it, it, despite the fact that we can't actually see the brain when we're, when we're stimulating, we can um, we can get an index of, of which which part of the brain we're, we're sitting over when we hold the coil against a person's head. So that's that's really where this has moved along from. Um, it's it's easy to target the motor cortex, for example, because we can we can stimulate the the motor cortex and we can see which which muscles are activated. But when we're looking at a region like the you know part of the frontal lobe, it's much more difficult. So that's where the combination of, of MRI and TMS really really comes into its own. Right. I'd just like to give our listener a picture of what it's like to be connected to one of these machines because sure. we've probably seen a, a clockwork orange, you know, and there's a guy with his eyes prized open and there's pads all over his head. Uh, it's not the beautiful minds, you know, the, the guy forcibly dragged down the corridor and I'm sub- subjected to, you know, electroshock therapy and it's yeah, portrayed yeah. as some sort of hideous torture which is administered without consent. But I've been told that's completely false. Yeah, not true at all. It I'd doesn't like hurt. Think- I'd like to think we're, we're slightly, uh, slightly more advanced than, than one flew over the cuckoo's nest and, and a clockwork orange. But um, well, there'd be, there'd be strong ethical uh, controls on the sort of research as is as is standard these days in science. There, are, there, there yes. are very strong ethical controls. So anything that, that we do um, in a research context, which is everything that I do, um, is. Um, only goes ahead once uh, once we go through a very rigorous uh, ethical uh, review process and, and make sure that the uh, the risks and benefits are taken into account and that we're operating under the safety guidelines. But look, just in terms of, um, I might make a couple of a couple of comments in terms of TMS, just trying to paint a bit of a picture uh, about the actual process. So, a person, say for a depression treatment, um, will will come in and they'll they'll essentially lie down, sort of in a recliner chair, and they'll have this coil, um, which is about uh, probably half a metre across placed against their head uh, and that coil is connected to, to a TMS stimulator um, and so the, uh, the, the magnetic pulses are delivered with this, with this, plas- with this um, plastic coated metal coil just, just held against their head. So that's, that's basically it. There's, there's nothing more than that. The coil is touching against their head um, and they're feeling some light tapping on the head as the magnetic pulses are being delivered, um, but um, that's essentially all it is. So when somebody has TMS, um, they're they're conscious, they're aware of what's going on at all times. We can communicate with people; they can they can speak to us. Um, it's it's a procedure that people can come in and have um, without any sort of anaesthetic, um, without any any um, 
changes in, in consciousness uh, and they can go about their, their usual daily activities. Uh, can can, they, can they actually uh, feel the magnetic pulse? Is there any awareness of, of what's going on? They can, what they can feel is, is the, the, the sort of the vibration of the coil as it, um, as it pulses, but the, the main feeling that people get is through scalp muscle activation. So as the pulse travels through to the brain, um, if it's sitting over, especially over some of the, uh, some of the lateral muscles in the, in the scalp, um, it's, it's unavoidable. We also stimulate those muscles on the way through so that the um, electrical um, induction is, is occurring for muscles as well as, as brain tissue. So people can get a bit of, bit of twitching, a bit of light twitching felt um, around the sort of the forehead area, sometimes into the eye. So that's the sensation, but um, I guess that's sort of a byproduct of what we're actually doing um, in the brain. There's, there's, there's nothing more than that. Right, so it's not the direct treatment itself. Look, no. And I should introduce the voice that we just spoke, <laughs> that you just heard a moment ago, and that is our uh, fantasy novelist, who's a prolific writer who has published uh, trilogies in both Australia and the United States, and also Czechoslovakia and Romania and other strange places, uh, even Tasmania, I think. And uh, now I've, I've invited Katie in. I'm not going to give her full name, and I'll get her to explain why we aren't using her full name at the moment. It's not that it's a secret, but uh, Katie, can you describe for us what Asperger's is? Well, it's, uh, it's what I've got. Um, and, well, yeah, obviously, as an author, I have a public profile. Um, and I, I never resolve to lie about having Asperger's, but, you know, I generally don't really talk about it um, unless it's relevant. Um, and that's because, well, I don't want to be defined by it, you know? Um, so... So you want to be known as the novelist who writes these particular sorts of books and so on, but yeah. not as Asperger? Yes, I want to be known as the, as the person who was, you know, good enough that she managed to sign her first contract before she had turned 20, not the person who bravely struggled against the terrible, you know, uh, handicap of having Asperger's. I mean, give me a break, really. <laughs> because... In fact, I, I once was interviewed by a um, podcast that was um, for blind people. So I can't remember the, the exact description, but you know, the, one of the, my two interviewers was blind, mostly blind, and most of the listeners would be blind as well. And they said, do you have anything to say to our listeners? And I said, never be defined by what you can't do. Right, which you indeed you have followed. But well, okay, actually, I didn't say that, but afterwards I wished I had. Oh. <laughs> never so let the, I said it in a different interview. All right, never let the facts get in the way. Now, can you describe for us what Asperger's and maybe what it means to you? Well, basically, Asperger's is a uh, learning disorder. It's a form of autism, high on the spectrum. Um, and it means, uh, well, yeah, so it's, it's a learning disability, whereas most people instinctively know how to read other people's body language and tone of voice and that sort of thing. People like me, we can't. So we tend to be rather oblivious, a very, you know, um, sort of like um, shut into ourselves, so to speak, because we find it very difficult to relate. Uh, so we tend to speak very pedantically. Um, as children, we're known to uh, lecture people, just randomly walk up and start talking at them about, without introducing ourselves. Um, in fact, Hans Asperger referred to uh, my kind as uh, little professors because uh, we're, we also tend to use very long words at, a, at an early age. I'm not sure why. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it makes for a pretty lonely... And also, the, um, there's a tendency towards, like, compulsive movements, uh, you know, like rocking or fist-clenching, that sort of thing. Uh, and also, uh, we tend to be very sort of um, focused on routine. Everything has to be a certain way, and if anything unexpected happens, if, if you've got it really badly, you might have a full-blown panic attack. So the, the, Which is, yeah, not pleasant. So you describe some of the challenges of being a spurgist. Spin it around now and tell us about some of the positives of being... Well, I should also add that we're inclined to be uh, um, at least average intelligence, often above average, sometimes even genius level. Um, and also we um, can... Uh, we have very long attention spans, like unnaturally long. Uh, when I was a, a kid, it was fashionable for your kid to have um, ADHD. And people said to my mum, oh, you know, she's probably got ADHD, you should put her on Ritalin because she doesn't pay attention in class. And my mum said, she does not have ADHD. She can sit next to the speaker and listen to Peter and the Wolf from beginning to end without moving a muscle. And um, now that I'm an adult and have basically learned to overcome, well, my challenges, if you want to put it that way, um, I've actually turned uh, my asperges into a real, well, into a... In a a superpower, so to speak. So most of the downsides aren't really a problem anymore. I do get anxiety um, in social situations and, and things, and I, I'm inclined to be an anxious person, but, you know, that's not particularly unusual. Um, but other authors say to me, 
you know, oh, it took me a year, two years to write this book. And I'm like, really? Because I can write a book in five days. And they're like, <laughs> what? And I said, well, it's because I've got Asperger's. I can sit for seven hours and write without, you know, without stopping. And also, um, in social situations, if someone's being obnoxious, I'm able to just go back to my old way of being completely oblivious. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm just letting these obnoxious remarks fly straight over my head. <laughs> so, so there definitely are some advantages. Definite here. benefits. Yeah, hi, it's Ian here. Um, thanks, thanks, Dr. Entercote, for, uh, for coming on the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. So this is something that maybe you or Katie might wish to answer. But for our listeners out there, can you tell us a bit more about what's actually happening inside the brain of someone with Asperger's? Because we've heard about some of Katie's difficulties and some of the positives as well of Asperger's. But what's happening internally? What's the brain actually doing? Yeah, I'd like to know that too. <laughs> yeah, me too, actually. Um, <laughs> no, it's, a, it's an excellent question. Uh, we, we're getting a, a better idea all the time about what's actually going on. Um, I, I guess I'll preface this by saying that uh, the, move, the move at the moment, uh, as Katie described, Asperger's is, is considered a, a form of autism, a very high-functioning form. But, but there's a move toward, uh, I guess, categorising these conditions under one label, which, which we now call autism spectrum disorder. So it's, it's sort of the recognition that all of these conditions exist on a spectrum, um, and it's, it's it, it one. Well, I, sh I should say that, that there's, there's an autism spectrum, and, and at one end of the, the spectrum we have people that uh, are very, um, I, I guess, in tune with others' uh, thoughts and feelings and beliefs, intentions and so forth. They're, they're um, people who are uh, highly in tune, I guess, with their, with their social environments, um, very responsive to, to others. Um, and at the other end, it's, it's considered that that's where you get people that, that get these, these labels of, of you know, autism and Asperger's and so forth. But... Um, you see a huge amount of variation across people with a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder mm. from, from what Katie described all the way through to, you know, I've seen many children over the years who, uh, you know, have um, extremely um, profound intellectual dif uh, disabilities. Um, you know, they have a, a tested IQ of, of, of 30 and um, they're, they're non-verbal and, and spend all of their time engaged in, in repetitive, very low-level yeah, completely movements. locked in themselves. It's, it's it, kind it, of soothing. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. So, so there's a lot of, lot of variation. So what that means is that the research is a bit difficult to, to tie down specifically to, to Asperger's in, in, in particular. But I guess if, if we look at the research and what's coming out now, it seems to be there's, there's, it's around cell communication, what we call neural connectivity. So it's about how well different regions of the brain communicate with one another and, and, and the synchronisation of, of brain cell activity, that's, that seems to be fundamentally different in somebody with an ASD as opposed to somebody without an ASD. And, and I guess in general what, what has been found is that, that people with an ASD tend to have reduced what we call long-range connectivity. So the, the tasks that require many different regions of the brain to work in, in unison um, they, they tend to fall down. They don't display that same level of, of synchronised activity uh, and this, this connectivity. But what's, what's interesting about these conditions is that we, we have some evidence, which is not as strong, but there's some evidence to suggest enhanced what we call short-range connectivity. So there might actually be better connections between brain cells, but within specific regions. So that might explain you know, some of these outstanding abilities in specific areas that, that might not need to rely on sort of a whole brain process. But what's interesting about about the social, what we call the social brain, so, so the brain networks that are involved in understanding others and, and I guess being in tune with our social environment is that they actually require many, many different regions of the brain to be working in unison and, and regions of the brain that are actually very far apart from one another. So we're talking about, you know, regions in the frontal lobe, in the, in the temporal and parietal lobe, so many, many regions quite far apart, um, all being uh, well-connected at the same time and, and working uh, in synchrony and, and over very, very quick uh, time timeframes as well. So that, that tends to be what's coming out. So uh, I, I guess that's probably as good an overview. There's, there's, some, other, there's some other work that's... that's um, come out mainly of the states which is about I guess the early developmental history of, of autism and I think this is this is work that is more specifically related to people with what we'd consider to be to be classic autism um, which which I, I personally think is, is very different to to, to what, what we know as Asperger's yeah it is yeah and, and these are these are uh, uh, well, 
well, they start out obviously as children, but, but they go on to be adults with autism, but there's, there's a much higher rate of, of intellectual disability, which, which obviously doesn't exist at all in Asperger's, um, but also a number of other fairly pronounced problems with, with um, sensory functions, often, often quite, quite um, sensitive to, to bright lights. And, and well, yeah, and that was so something forth. I thought I should have mentioned, that we tend to be very hypersensitive to, to yeah. stimuli. Like, I used to be very into touching things when I was small. Yeah. And I, I think the, the thing that I've heard is that people with really full-blown autism, uh, they kind of close in on themselves because they can't cope with the stimuli around them. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly, um, that's certainly something that we, that we tend to see. And, and from a brain perspective, what's, what's been found there is that there's this pattern of, of brain overgrowth in the early years of life. So, so people with, with autism have a larger brain in, huh. um, in the first couple of years. And what we think it, it reflects is, is either one of two processes or potentially both of them. Um, together, so um, there's there's a period in which cells migrate during during, during neural development in the in, in utero, um, and um, and so there's there's proliferation of these cells, but there's also uh, apoptosis that occurs after that, where cells that are not needed, so they they're, they're basically not really doing anything um, anything of value, are actually um, are actually eliminated by the brain. So there's this proliferation, and then there's this apoptosis, um, which is really critical to efficient brain function. So it's about working out which which connections in the brain are actually working well, and which we should keep, and which are just sort of um, just contributing toward noise and, and, and basically uh, you know taking up space that, that otherwise doesn't need to be taken up so so there's a suggestion that one of both of these processes isn't working properly in autism so what you get is this lack of, of, um, of apoptosis or this this increase in proliferation or potentially both that actually increases the brain volume in these early years um, we see over time a normalization in in the brain volume but um, by by the time somebody with autism is in their 20s there's actually a bit of evidence to suggest that that it starts to go the other way it starts to to look a bit more degenerative um that's that's pretty preliminary at this stage but mm. in, in terms of the the biology of autism that's that's probably what we know most about uh, at this stage but again I'd, I'd really stress that that most of this work is done with with people with with classic autism it's it's mostly post-mortem work so it's it's um the brains of people who have unfortunately died at a very early age and, and they've looked at them um you know, across across different uh, yep. different ages. And Peter, do we do we have a sense to what extent this is a genetic condition? And I think you're implying there that some of it might be in neutro in the early development stages. Do we very much so? Do we have a sense of, of what the balance is and and what is environment versus what is inbuilt? And perhaps we should take the opportunity at this point to make it absolutely clear to our listeners that uh, autism has nothing to do with um, um, immunisation shots. Yes, we, we because, should absolutely do that because that is yeah, I mean, undoubtedly I, true. Yeah, and, and yeah we, we want as many people as possible to know that because not yeah. giving your kid the, the, the needles that they need is and seriously... Yes, yeah. and also but I might just throw in before you answer, Peter, um, yeah. that uh, Katie's mother, when uh, Katie was when, when she was pregnant with Katie, yeah. uh, got a really severe flu at one right, point. Right. And I've got no idea whether that's uh, a correlation or causation or just happens to be coincidental. And maybe I'm just purely speculating, but it was a, a, a quite a bad flu during the late trimester hmm. she yeah. also said i reacted very badly to an inoculation shot when i was small and at one point she actually did wonder could there be a link but no the the study that uh, belief is based on turned out to be a hoax yeah look it, it was and, and everything that's come out since and, and, and certainly some of the recent meta-analyses where they they take a range of studies and put them all together uh show absolutely no link between between immunization and autism and it's it's a sad state of affairs that that um that that myth uh, continues but um mm. that's that's where we find ourselves and i certainly agree that, that there's a lot of uh, ill effects that, that are you know we, we're seeing really serious diseases that, that people don't tend to have a living memory of that they're, they're well yeah and it's basically people saying we would rather our kid was you know got smallpox than yeah. had asperger's i mean that's kind yeah. of mean yeah. <laughs> it's not fair okay well here on fuzzy logic we're having a deep and meaningful conversation right down to the core of the brain with professor peter endicott from deakin university and katie who is a prolific fantasy novelist and we might break to a track and this is a journey seems appropriate here on fuzzy logic 
And a bit of Fat Boy Slim there on Fuzzy Logic, and you're listening to Two Double X, and we are interviewing Professor Peter Entercott from Deakin University, and he's from the Cognitive Neuroscience Unit, and we're discussing a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation and how it can be applied to well people such as our guest here, Katie, who has Asperger's. Now, Peter, just before the break, we were discussing the uh, genetic component of Asperger's. Can you uh, fill us in on that? Because I asked you what, uh, how much of it is in utero or later in life and how much of it is genetic. What do we know about that? Well, we know that there's, there's a genetic component to autism spectrum disorder taken as a whole. Um, so, so that is to say that, that for... for, for many people potentially all people there is there is some genetic contribution but what i mean there's a number of problems with that it's 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 far from straightforward there are quite literally hundreds of different genetic contributions um to to an autism spectrum disorder what we know about um it only actually covers a, a reasonably small percentage of the of the people that do have this uh, one of these one of these conditions and maybe about 20 percent something like that so there's certainly a genetic contribution that's not the whole story um you mentioned for example about um other influences in utero that's that's certainly something that's that's been implicated not just in an autism spectrum disorder but other conditions such as schizophrenia so so there tends to be a, a range of potential contributing factors and and we're finding out more all the time about that it's it's certainly not um not definitively known but uh i think what we can say at this at this stage is that there is a genetic contribution or that there are there are many genetic contributions that, that can, um, can right now now Peter, we, we mentioned other things that might be other conditions that might be treated by uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation um, we have in the studio as well uh, Eleanor and Eleanor has a personal story here and it regards one of her siblings uh, yeah hi Professor Endicott um, I have a gorgeous little sister with a very very severe intellectual disability um, would this sort of therapy perhaps in the future have applications with the lower functioning side of the autism spectrum or p- potentially cerebral palsy or other uh, disabilities like that hi Eleanor yeah Certainly, uh, there's there's a potential. Um, there's not been as much work done in in, in the so-called lower functioning um, end of, of the autism spectrum, um, and and that's that's a problem that we have throughout the autism research. And I must admit, I'm as probably as guilty as, as any academic of that. That um, we tend to we tend to do most of the research in, in um, higher functioning, uh, so-called higher functioning people with with autism spectrum disorder, so people that have uh, an intellectual ability that's within the average or above average range. Um, but but we're certainly now expanding our our research into into people that, that do have an intellectual disability as well. It's too early to say from our research whether we'll get the same the same um, positive findings that we've had in, in people without intellectual disability who have an ASD or an autism spectrum disorder. But there is some research that's um, come out of Italy in the last 12 months or so, um, and they actually did some TMS research, not not specifically focused on. Um, social understanding or anything like that. It was about um, it was about really hand-eye coordination, um, and what they were able to show is that there were positive uh, positive effects of TMS on this specific area. And so that's that's targeting one particular part of the brain to to, to look at one particular um, potential um, improvement in symptoms. But but I think there is a lot of potential that, that we can actually develop these. Uh, these brain stimulation treatments for a range of, of conditions. I guess the main thing is that we're able to understand what's actually happening in the brain to to underpin um, the difficulties that somebody might have, and then actually being able to to adapt the um, the brain stimulation process to target that specific area of the brain and to have to have a positive effect. So I, I certainly think that um, we'll see more about that in, in years to come, and it's it's definitely a, a possibility. Yeah, hi Peter. Um, it's Ian here. So I think one of the main reasons that we got you to, to come in on the show today was about your your new area of research in transmagnetic stimulation. So do you want to tell our listeners a bit more about what your new findings 
uh, are telling us um, yeah. in relation to Asperger's? Yeah, sure, Ian. Happy to. Um, I, might, I might go back a few years and, and just explain where this came from in terms of, of the work that we've been doing in autism. Um, about, uh, about eight or nine years ago, I started working with uh, Professor Paul Fitzgerald, who's at the Alfred Hospital uh, here in Melbourne, um, who has a, a very long and distinguished uh, career in, in using TMS for, for a number of conditions, but mainly mainly depression and, and schizophrenia. And, and I've been an autism researcher for a number of years before that, but um, I guess uh, Professor Fitzgerald and another colleague of mine, Professor Nicole Reinhardt, had been talking about the, the possible use of, of TMS for, for autism. And, and Nicole and I had, had been doing uh, some work in, in motor dysfunction, and which is which is fairly common in, in a lot of people with autism. And what we did in the first instance was we used TMS to to target specific areas of, of the, the motor system. And, and what we showed there was that we could actually improve um, how the brain um, how the brain controlled motor activity in in teenagers with with autism and Asperger's, um, and and that was great. But I, but I guess we were keen to see if we could have similar sorts of effects on uh, social processes. Now we we identified a part of the brain uh, about five or six years ago um, that we thought would be a good uh, a good target, a good a good place to stimulate. Um, to, to try and improve social functioning in, in, in people with an autism spectrum disorder. And the part of the brain that we chose is an area within what we call the medial prefrontal cortex. And so if you can think about the brain and the, and the, two, the two hemispheres of the brain, and, and the frontal lobe at the, at the front of the brain, where they come together, so that the, I guess the inside sides of, of those two hemispheres, um, which is for most people just sort of directly under the, under the hairline at the top of the forehead, um, that's a part of the brain that, that we know is involved in, in understanding other people's thoughts and, and feelings, but it's also a part of the brain that when we put people with an ASD uh, in the scanner is actually less active than it should be. So it seems that, that this, is, this is part of the, the biological reason that, that people with, with these conditions might not be able to understand others as, as well as somebody without an ASD. Now the problem that we had in terms of targeting this, this area was that it's, it's quite deep down, it's, it's quite far away from the scalp. And so with a, with a standard TMS coil, you can, you can stimulate about one to two centimetres uh, into, the, into the brain or from the, from the scalp, which is fine if you've got a region just, just under, under, the, uh, under the scalp on the surface of the brain, but here we wanted to go a bit deeper. So what we, what we did uh, is, is we collaborated with a, with a group in Israel uh, known as Brainsway, and, and what they do is that they build custom uh, what we call deep TMS coils. So it's, it's essentially the same technology, but it, it sends a TMS pulse deeper into the brain. So they built us a coil to, that could actually, uh, actually stimulate this specific area of the, uh, of the medial prefrontal cortex. So we've been running, or we, we, we ran a clinical trial um, over, the, over the course of a few years that, that involved getting people in um, who, who were adults with, with autism or, or high-functioning autism or Asperger's syndrome, um, mainly, mainly Asperger's syndrome, I should, I should mention. And, uh, and we gave, we randomly allocated them to either have two weeks of, uh, of, of daily or week daily treatments to, to the medial prefrontal cortex. And what we were doing is uh, getting them in for 15 minutes a day um, and, and giving what we call high-frequency stimulation. And the, atten the intention there is to, to upregulate or boost activity in a particular part of the brain that is, that is less active than it should be. And the other half of the people that came into the study were, were randomly allocated to have a placebo form of this treatment. So it's where they came in, they, they had the coil placed over their head and everything else and, and, the, and the sound and the, the shaking of the coil, but there was no magnetic stimulation actually delivered. And so we gave a number of assessments around um, autism symptoms and, and social understanding and so forth before they had their first treatment, then immediately after their last treatment at the end of the two weeks. And then we got them back in a month later and, uh, and, and went through the assessments again. What we found, and, and we published this study earlier, published this study earlier this year, and it was it was what I was up in Canberra to speak about at the uh, at the Shine Dome uh, a few weeks back, uh, is that people who had the active treatment actually showed a significant reduction in their social symptoms. So at the end of that month period, they they were reporting less um, of the the social problems that, than they reported when they came into the study. The, and, and that wasn't any that wasn't a, a change that we saw in the people that had the placebo form of TMS. What what was the other interesting uh, factor with with that work is that we also saw a reduction in in their ratings of social anxiety. So while their their uh, social difficulties uh, seem uh, seem to decrease, 
um, we also saw a, a, a decrease in their social anxiety, which, I mean, for me, it makes sense that, um, you know, the anxiety and the social anxiety that, that some people with, with Asperger's feel is, is often a reaction to the, the social difficulties. So we, we saw reductions there. So, you know, for us, it was extremely encouraging and, and we're very... Um, we're excited by this, but I guess cautiously optimistic would be the right phrase, um, because what we're seeing here wasn't, you know, it wasn't it wasn't making it wasn't taking away, you know, the difficulties completely, completely, but it was certainly a step in the right direction. And uh, and a two-week treatment course um, is is pretty pretty limited. So so in depression, for example, people usually come in and have 40-minute treatments for, for up to six weeks, um, you know, every, every weekday. So so we just started out with a pretty gentle uh, gentle treatment course, but we certainly were able to, to induce induce these effects. Well, that's, that, that's a good point, at which to um, uh, get you in a dialogue with Katie, uh, Peter. But uh, first we might break to a track, but uh, when we come back from the, this, uh, and I'll explain why I've chosen this particular track as well, but uh, I'd like to get a bit of dialogue between you and Katie as to why somebody with Asperger's would want your treatment and, and would, what it would mean, what would the risks be. And I'd like to ask Katie how she would respond to that. So here on Fuzzy Logic today, we are talking to Professor Peter Endicott, Associate Professor of Psychology at the Cognitive Neuroscience Unit from Deakin University, and Katie, who is prolific fantasy novelist, now I've chosen this track and I might just let it play and then I'll explain why I've chosen Jimi Hendrix and the Star Spangled Banner Fuzzy Logic. Jimi Hendrix there for our fictionados. Uh, I won't flick too much more of Jimi Hendrix's uh, Star Spangled Banner on you. And the reason I chose that for our Fuzzy Logic interview today, which is largely got a theme of Asperger, one of the characteristics of Asperger's is an obsessive focus on one, a narrow range of topics. And Jimi Hendrix, according to legend, was permanently bolted to his Fender... Was it a Stratocaster, Peter? It was indeed. Yeah, he's a Fender Stratocaster, and his obsessive focus on playing that guitar was a major part of his genius. And, of course, we are talking to Professor Peter Endicott, a professor of neuroscience at Deakin University, and to Katie, who is a Spurger and fantasy novelist. Now, Peter, I just want to sort of get a conversation between you and Katie going and on the theme of, as an Asperger herself, would she consider this treatment? What would it mean for her? How long-lasting would the effect? Why might she want to do this treatment? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I probably should should start out by saying it's it's not a treatment that's in practice at the moment. It's, it's I guess, what we'd consider an experimental treatment. It's something that, that our, our initial research has shown might have some benefit and it's something that we'll continue to research. And, and if all, all goes according to plan, it's, it's something that we would expect to be to be a treatment in, in years to come. But, you know, for me, it's not something that should be applied across the board to anybody who has uh, a diagnosis of Asperger's. It's something that um, is is being developed not as, not as any sort of cure or, or something to, to take away this label, but it's being developed for, for the people who, who, you know, the many people I've encountered over the years who have a diagnosis of, of autism or Asperger's and, and identify with, with really severe social difficulties and, and would actually like to have a biomedical treatment available that might actually provide some, some benefit to them in terms of their, their, their ability to, to understand and, and, and interact with other people, you know, to, 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 um, to have relationships, be them, be them platonic uh, or intimate relationships or, or to, to exist in workplaces a bit more, um, a bit more comfortably. So those, those are the sorts of, of people that, that I'd, uh, I'd expect that, that if, this, if this goes according to plan would, would you know, want to come forward and actually have this treatment. But I certainly I don't look at it as something that, that should be forced upon anybody that doesn't, doesn't want to, to have it, but it's something that could be available for people that would actually like to, to, to have some improvement to their social understanding. Right, so Katie, what's, what's your feeling about this? Well, okay, so, well, I think my opinion here would be a little bit surprising to some people, um, because, well, so if someone said to me straight out, oh, you know, would you want your Asperger's cured? My answer would be no, because, you know, 
that's like part of who I am and blah 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 and I use it to my advantage and so on but the thing is it can't be cured because well e even if you know all of the symptoms were taken away uh, my personality is still set I mean I'm, I'm 28 so it's a bit late for me to change if it, if it had been taken away from me when I was a kid then yeah but um, as a matter of fact um, if I were offered this treatment I would say yes because um, you know I don't resent that I have Asperger's but to be perfectly blunt about it uh, being you know a bit socially awkward and, and having the you know um, unreasonable levels of anxiety about certain harmless situations it sucks and I don't think anyone would want that and you know um, like if, if, if it was suggested that one day you know like genetic treatment could be used to eliminate Asperger's altogether as a condition would I approve of that I would be possibly inclined to say actually yes because, I mean, people point out that, oh, you know, it's not so bad having it, and people with Asperger's have achieved really great things. Well, blind people have also achieved really great things, but does that mean we don't want to cure blindness? Because, okay, some of us have, have really, you know, done well for ourselves. I mean, I've published 13 novels, and I'm not even 30 yet, and, and we had, you know, musical geniuses and so on. But I know I've met other people with Asperger's who are just completely dysfunctional. Like, you know, can't hold down a job, can't keep friendships. Uh, continuously running out of money uh, it's just not fair and yeah. it's not fair I mean there's always going to be people who overcompensate for their disabilities but what about all the people who don't because you know you don't hear about the people with Asperger's who end up you know alone and you know hooked on drugs or whatever because they just can't cope it's not fair oh, look that's exactly right Katie I, I absolutely agree I mean this is this is um, you know my experience is that that unfortunately most of the people that I've met either in my research or my, my clinical psychology work um, they're, they're incredibly unhappy with with how, how life is going and, mm -hmm. um, and and have a, a you know a great number of uh, things to offer they're, they're often extremely talented in particular areas but if they go and, and get a job in a workplace it, it doesn't tend to work out too well because they you know there's this conflict with with workmates and they, they well, have a lot yeah. of difficulty working with other people so it's not enough to be talented if you can't relate to people. I mean, for example, Edgar Allan Poe was brilliant, but he was—he died of failure because he didn't manage to make those connections in life. And, and yeah, because, you know, like Henry Ford would never have been as successful as he was if he hadn't managed to make friends with another guy who, who basically gave him his start. So it's not always what you know, it's often who you know, and if you can't relate to people, then odds are you're not going to get very far. And I think there's a broader issue at play here about, you know, how we think about something like Asperger's. You know, do we do we think about it as a as a disorder, or do we think about it as a, as a personality type? And 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 that's something that um, you know that it's a it's a really controversial issue actually. Yeah, field. very. And, and and there's there's people that are, um, yeah, I, I guess um, you know quite militant about it, and really do feel that that it's not it's not an impairment. It's it's something that should be considered a personality type. And, and I guess would be would be fairly hostile to people like me that are coming along saying, well, we might be able to sort of develop these. Well, yeah, my, my initial knee-jerk reaction was leave my brain alone. But then I read about the research and I thought, well, actually, that sounds pretty good to me. I wouldn't mind having my, you know, twitchiness taken away. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, as, as I mentioned, you know, for me, it's, it's not about um, providing something across the board. It is about providing well, yeah, you, you to the people choose that actually to have would it. like to have an option. And, and there are many people that would like to. I think one of the, one of the difficulties with with psychology and psychiatry in general is, is the, the media portrayal is that that often you know that the what, what we hear about is is the cases of, of people who um, thrive um, sometimes because of but, but often despite um, their, their particular condition and I come back to things like you know a beautiful mind and, and that <laughs> and, and you know that, that somebody would actually come away with you know a, a feeling about say schizophrenia and go oh is, isn't it wonderful isn't it isn't it beautiful yeah those evil doctors were torturing him and he and, only got better when he stopped taking yeah, his pills and, that's and not a very good message to take home <laughs> unfortunately that's not that's not the case you know schizophrenia is, is an incredibly uh, you know for people that, that live with it an incredibly difficult illness to live with oh, and, yeah, it would and be. highly highly treatment resistant and, and causes all sorts of, uh, of suffering to individuals it's not it's not the reality of the situation, something like... It know, doesn't Russell give Crow. you superpowers, guys, seriously. <laughs> no, so, um, I mean, that's that's frustrating as well. Well, yeah, and speaking of media portrayals, something that annoys me a bit is that Asperger's has become fashionable. There are people out there who, yeah. who lie about having it and, and try and diagnose themselves with it because they think it gives them, well, to be, you know, crude about it, they think if, it, if I've got Asperger's, that gives me... Um, 
permission to act like a jackass. No one can call me on it because they've got Asperger's. Oh, you know, and that. Ugh. And yeah, I'm, I'm certainly worried about. Sort that of really a, annoys me. That's yeah, like I'm, lying about having cancer, which people also do. Well, I'm worried about it as sort of a, a tendency to pathologize a particular, a particular, I guess, type of person or a way of thinking. Um, and, and, and that's not, not something that, that we should ever be doing. And, and in the case of something like autism or Asperger's, you know, the diagnosis is given on, on the basis of not just symptoms being met, but it's actually the person experiencing what we call clinically significant impairment. So it's actually having a significant negative impact on, on facets of their life. And that, that might, be, might be family life, it might be school life, it might be, might be learning, education, social life. Well, but, yeah, that's what these people are, they just want the benefits. Yeah, so there, yeah. there has to so be they some pretend. sort of, you know, clinically significant impairment, for, not just not just for an Asperger's um, diagnosis to be made, but for, for all of these conditions. Yeah, well, you don't have Asperger's, you're just a rude nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness yeah. knows there's plenty of those around. <laughs> okay, so here on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking uh, well, brain treatments, and in particular people with Asperger's syndrome. Uh, it is a syndrome, I think, isn't it, Peter? Is that the right? Yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We, we'd certainly call it a syndrome rather yeah. than, say, a disease, and, and some people would actually suggest you don't call it a disorder as or either and, and look some are, some are uh, not quite happy about it being called a syndrome but um, oh, right. yeah or so a disability so yeah, yeah. i'm not disabled i'm handy capable <laughs> <laughs> so i'm trying to interrupt the disperger here so professor yeah, Inter- professor Hedicott from Deakin <laughs> university and uh the the, the chatty katie t- who's uh, a prolific fantasy novelist and uh, i just want to sort of continue this dialogue with you and katie on the theme of so if if katie was I know you're not calling it a treatment because you're in the research phase, right? You've yeah. made that you've made that clear. So, but if someone like Katie was to approach a, 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 your inverted commas treatment, yep. what what would it mean for her? So, what would she do? Are there any side effects? How long lasting will it be? And oh, so on. Oh yeah, I wanted to yeah, know about that no, too. This is, this is great to talk about. So, in terms of, of side effects. Um, there, there can be side effects of TMS. Uh, for most people that, that go through TMS, they don't experience side effects. But if we can talk, first of all, about the most serious side effect, which is also the rarest, and, and it's something that's only happened probably, you know, a dozen to 15 times worldwide in the last 30 years. And, and certainly it was much more common before we had standard safety guidelines. And what I'm talking about here is the potential for TMS to induce a seizure or a fit. Mm. Um, and, and that is something that um, is obviously... Uh, you know, a very, very much an unwanted event, and it and it's occurred in the past mainly where people have had pre-existing seizure disorders such as epilepsy, and they've had very high levels of stimulation given. So, with our research, we don't stimulate um, anybody that has ever had a seizure, um, and uh, and we stimulate within within safety guidelines. So, if you can think about the Australian context, there's you know many many groups around Australia that do TMS, and there's tens of thousands of people that have had TMS, uh, you know, over the last 15 to 20 years. We've never had a seizure report to my knowledge in Australia but it's something we do need to be mindful of so a, a serious serious event but in serious events um, but incredibly rare mm. but more commonly what we um, what we tend to see in terms of side effects is um, I, I guess the the result of, of the muscle stimulation so that is sort of mild tension headaches that people can get um, so, so as I mentioned before it actually can stimulate scalp muscles the magnetic pulse can stimulate scalp muscles on the way through so so people can get uh, sort of mild tension headaches that um, you know will resolve with with aspirin or paracetamol or something like that but um, but it's certainly something that, that people need to be aware of as well uh, how long lasting is the effect Peter? Uh, of tms the, yeah. the positive effects yes <laughs> now this is this is something we don't know enough about in terms of, of autism and asperger's and we're currently doing a study where we're where we're following people up for six months after to, to try and get an index of, of how long lasting it is but with, we, we can probably look at the depression context. Um, it's, it's variable. You know, where, where TMS is effective in depression treatment, it's, it's not for everybody. The, the success rates are somewhere around 50 to 60%. But um, it, it can be weeks, months or years. It, it really does depend. Um, the, the depression work that's been done suggests that, you know, a year later a significant, um, you know, number of people uh, are still, um, they're still in remission. But for those that... For those that don't, for, for where the, the effect might only last, say, months, what people tend to do is come back for what we call maintenance treatments. So they might have a treatment once a week for four weeks rather than once a day for six weeks. And uh, and that tends to be enough for, for, for many people to sort of get back to where they were and, and continue on. So it does vary. And we don't really know why. We, we need to better understand some of the, you know, some of the individual factors that might... Um, 
you know, that, that might explain why some people can have TMS for depression and, and it be a lasting uh, positive well, I, effect. Well, I, I, I guess the, the brain is such a, a, an astoundingly complicated device. Well, that, yeah. Uh, it's, there should be no surprise that uh, we've still got a long way to go to really figure this out yeah. properly. Yeah. And one of, the, uh, one of the difficulties is that we're using that very device to try and understand it. So, uh, <laughs> you know, yes, that's right. conflict there. Yes, yeah, a philosophical uh, story, isn't it? It, it is, and some, some would argue that that, uh, that means it will never quite get to the, uh, the heart of the matter. I, but, I uh, kind of like the fact that there's a deep mystery there and look um, we on uh, Fuzzy Logic have uh, lined up another researcher soon with a vaguely related topic and maybe make a quick comment about this Peter but uh, Dr Martin Selbom is a, a senior lecturer in the ANU School of Psychology and he's been writing on the subject of psychopathy or psychopaths which uh, is a deeply fascinating one that one appears in a lot of movies. Are there, is there any well, it may be too big a question to ask you in the short time we've got left, but any any comments on that, uh, Peter, before we go on? Well, yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Do you think that your treatment could work on a psychopath? Look, it's it's not something that's that's really been looked at. Um, with, with psychopathy, as you'd probably imagine, um, you don't tend to get a lot of psychopaths that are, that are really seeking treatment. Um, there tends to be a, a, a you know a fairly uh, limited amount of insight and uh, uh, and, and the you know that looked at the you know quote unquote diagnosis that's made around psychopathy is usually made in the context of somebody having committed you know fairly serious offences. But, but look, the, the the archetypal psychopath is somebody that is without conscience uh, essentially. So they they have generally. From, from the studies that have been done, they have a good understanding of other people's, uh, you know, thoughts and feelings. Um, the difference there is that they don't tend to care too much, and uh, and they um, they they operate in a very different way. Yes, they can be um, ruthless. Well, well, Martin Selbom is talking about high functioning psychopaths, yeah, and yeah. those those who make it to the top of the corporate ladder become. Lawyers, <laughs> and, uh, writers, and um, <laughs> and, and uh, politicians. Uh, look, we, we we've just about uh, done our time, and there's so many questions, Peter. And it's been a fantastic opportunity to talk to you. Very grateful for that. And uh, the, the, and even today's Ask Fuzzy that appears each week in the Fairfax Media uh, is one I would ask you if you had more time. And that's about why garbage smells. And uh, believe me, yes, I, there is actually a connection to the brain, and that is there's the chemistry of why it smells, and then there's the brain and why we interpret it as such a disgusting thing. Yeah. So that and, and our connection of senses to uh, why it's so deep in our psychology, I think that's interesting. There's, there's great evolutionary theories on that. That's, oh, that's yes. a fascinating area. Definitely, yeah. Uh, uh, we've got a sleep researcher coming up, a uh, question about water and ice ages, and... Uh, a question about ice the other sort of ice that is the one the drug that is running rampant uh, so apparently across much of Australia and uh, not nasty stuff so we're going to be running Ask Fuzzies in the Canberra Times and Fairfax Media and it's thank you very much Professor Peter Endicott it's been great talking to you it's been uh, a pleasure, thank you. Uh, Katie, thank you for your time. And uh, Eleanor and Ian, uh, plenty more coming up on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, catch you later.